0: To the term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and I'm joined by my co-host, Law360 Supreme Court reporter, Jimmy Hoover. Jimmy, it has been quite a week. I don't even know where to start processing it.
1: It seems like we went from zero to 60 very quickly. Um, zero, after, to 100. zero to a hundred. Zero to a hundred. Yeah. So let's start with Friday, right? This is the formal investiture for Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. I went down to the court for this and it was pretty interesting. You know, you had the who's who of uh, kind of the Washington political establishment in attendance for Justice Jackson receiving her formal commission. I mean, she had already been confirmed and sworn in earlier in the summer, but this is kind of the, the very uh, ceremonial, traditional process whereby the attorney general kind of moves the commission of Justice Jackson to begin her formal Supreme Court career. There was, like I said, President Biden in attendance. There was Vice President Kamala Harris, Justice Breyer, and Kennedy. Um, there was Justice Jackson's family, various U.S. senators and House members, and judges of the various courts that she has sat on over the years. It was uh, kind of short on substance and long on the traditional aspects of these investitures, where like she sits in the in the traditional chair once occupied by the you know the former Chief Justice John Marshall and she does the traditional walk down the courthouse steps with justice Chief Justice Roberts it's all very kind of by the book but it's it's interesting nonetheless
0: all very cool pomp and circumstance though like I think it's yeah
1: pretty, yeah.
0: pretty cool and you had a bit of a, a story to tell from from being in the room <laughs> right something so, that did not get reported on no um, from no, what no. I could this tell. was
1: this was my amateur career as a uh, lip reader—I was—I had my eyes glued on President Biden the whole time. I had not, you know, seen him in person before, and uh, it was kind of funny as he walked in. He was looking pretty spry, and he sat down, kind of just a few feet from the the justices' bench. And I, and I kind of almost swear I saw him turn to someone who I couldn't quite make out in front of him and mouth the words "I'm back" and like kind of shoot finger guns at someone in his <laughs> in the classic way that only Biden can. But no one in us in the press. Room corroborated it, which kind of has me kind of like questioning my version of events. But anyway, that that is my story, and I'm sticking to it, Natalie. Now, what do you make of that?
0: I I just want to know who he was he was looking at because we <laughs> I would have assumed it would have been the Chief Justice, but you said it's it's probably likely not him. So I'm just like I'm probably curious not, to no. see. I'm curious to know who he was aiming those comments at.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but back
0: indeed, he is back. The court is back.
1: Yes, yes. We're all Big
0: back. week of oral arguments, which I know we're going to get into. Um, also, a ton of CERT grants. Uh, we had been complaining about how the docket was like barely half full. Uh, they've made some headway on that. Um, we'll also talk about that in a little bit. And amidst all that, there was also an emergency application from former President Donald Trump, uh, who on Tuesday, asked the high court to step into the litigation brawl over classified documents that were seized in August um, from his Florida resort Mar-a-Lago by the DOJ. There's a whole legal case happening over whether the DOJ should be able to review those documents uh, or their special master to first be appointed and coordinating the the review. He asked um, the justices to step in and reverse an 11th Circuit order from last month that had allowed the DOJ to keep reviewing materials and stayed a lower court order appointing a special master. Trump said the appellate court lacked jurisdiction to review that appointment. That was Tuesday. I will say on Wednesday, the 11th Circuit agreed then to fast track the government's appeal of the special master appointment. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, threads in this litigation happening. Uh, We have not heard from the Supreme Court if they're going to indeed step in and make a, you know, emergency uh, decision order on on this.
1: Very fast-moving situation. I think Justice Thomas has ordered a response uh, from the government, so we should get that sometime next week. Um, but in the meantime, let's reflect on the week we just had where, you know, I think, you know, we started off talking about, the investiture of Justice Jackson. And I think this week we should really focus on what was such a monumental week for her career. We haven't really given her appointment the attention I think it probably deserves. So we're going to try and remedy that this week by focusing on what I think was a pretty remarkable first week of oral arguments, Natalie.
0: That's right. For Justice Brown Jackson, she kind of came out swinging. Um, She sat for arguments on Monday and Tuesday. Jimmy, what did we learn there from those first days?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had been asking a lot of Scotus practitioners, attorneys, like what what they're going to be watching for in her first term, and one of the things that they continuously told me was they want to see how she fits into the, the dynamics on the bench. You know, is she going to be kind of more deferential to her senior colleagues and take a back seat during court arguments, or was she going to come out of the gate swinging? Um, you know, she was obviously an active questioner on the district court, um, where she was, you know, a, a ruler of one in her courtroom. And she also sat on dozens of three judge panels as a D.C. circuit judge, and she was still pretty active in those cases as well. But the Supreme Court's kind of a different ballgame. There's a lot of attention, a lot of scrutiny given to oral arguments, um, and you know her eight new colleagues are some of the most, I don't know, respected, at least in the eyes of the presidents who appointed them, judicial thinkers in the country. And so would her behavior ring true as well when she joined the court? I think the answer after this week of arguments was a resounding yes. She showed none of the usual reticence of a first time justice. She dove straight into the cases with very tough, very proactive questions for various attorneys. Now, it's not totally unheard of. You know, I mean, Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Justice Neil Gorsuch, two of uh, President Trump's appointees, they were pretty active questioners as well. But I think what caught a lot of Court Watchers' attention about Justice Jackson was just how engaged she was with the larger themes of the cases. She was really willing to challenge not just the advocates themselves, but also some of her conservative colleagues on the bench.
0: Now, can you contrast Justice Jackson's style with that of her predecessor, Justin Stephen Breyer, who had a very kind of specific questioning and (laughs) argument style as, as well?
1: Yeah, no, he definitely did. I mean, the obvious takeaway in contrast is the fact that there were no air conditioned igloos or pet oysters or whatever kind of zany hypothetical would typically be drummed up by Justice Breyer.
0: When we spoke before, like it wouldn't have been completely out of the realm of possibility for Justice Jackson to uh, inject some perhaps levity. She has a bit of an improv background. I, you know, I don't know if pet oysters are you know, exactly what we kind of imagined, but, you know, it's, it seems like not her style, right?
1: No, Um. despite the fact that, yeah, I think she like took an improv class with like Matt Damon or something. I can't even remember the exact details that emerged over her confirmation. But in any event, she didn't, she was not playing that role that Justice Breyer had become famous for, which if I'm honest, like I think, you know, would bring some levity to some otherwise very serious SCOTUS arguments. So on a side note, I will miss that from Breyer. But let's get to what I think is kind of the big difference between the two. And that is, you know, you got the sense from Justice Breyer a lot of the time that he was genuinely struggling with some facet or another of the case. And he was like using oral arguments and sometimes what would be these long-winded hypotheticals as a way to work out his understanding of the different positions in the case. And that could have been the case for like a very complicated arbitration case with no obvious political valence to it but also like a contentious abortion hearing where you almost certainly knew where he was going to come out. So it seems like Justice Jackson based off of this very limited sample size of her first week of oral arguments is just a lot more direct. She seems to know exactly what the stakes of these big cases are and is aware that she's in basically a liberal minority on a court where, you know, she does not have the critical mass of voting power that her conservative colleagues do. So she approaches oral arguments, at least from my perspective, as an opportunity to not just kind of dismantle an advocate's argument, but also to try to lobby for one or two of the Republican appointed colleagues that she's on the bench with. So in that sense, I think she shares like a lot more similarities with uh, Sotomayor and Kagan with respect to you know, her approach to oral arguments. I think if this were like a David Attenborough documentary, the attorney would be like the SEAL trying to reach like its colony on some rocky beach far away. But in the middle are these three kind of orcas represented by Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and now Justice Jackson that are basically trying to prevent the SEAL from reaching its friends on the other side who are represented by the conservative justice. That's my metaphor, Natalie. Please stick with me on it.
0: <laughs> I think that might be the first time the justices of the Supreme Court have been compared to orcas.
1: Okay, maybe, maybe. But
0: it's, <laughs> not, it's
1: not so out of the, you know, it's, it's not so not. out of the realm of possibility when you actually see the way that uh, the justices kind of swarm and circle uh, like the attorneys that are appearing before them. And in this case, I think they really do kind of speak sometimes with a single voice in trying to maybe pick off or dismantle the arguments that an attorney is making to pretty much the conservative wing of the court.
0: I will say that was also, I think, a good segue to the first of the oral arguments that we're going to be chatting about this week, which involved uh, federal protections for wetlands. See, I set uh, you, know, you up, Natalie. You, you did. You set me up real well for that one, and I appreciate it. Um, especially, you know, I, I think we need a good set up for any case where we're going to be talking about the Clean Water Act. And the definition of waters of the United States, and specifically the definition of how you define what's adjacent to waters of the United States uh, for regulatory purposes. So the case at hand um, was Sackett versus EPA. Uh, just a little backstory. Uh, the case is about Idaho landowners, Michael and Chantel Sackett, who want to build a house. Um, and they were told to stop because the land that they were trying to build on contains a wetland that's quote, unquote, adjacent to a nearby lake that is a water of the United States. I know we've heard this term uh, come up time and time again at the Supreme Court. uh, Let's just not make
1: WOTUS a thing. There's already too many OTUSs, SCOTUSs, FLOTUSs, POTUSs. Do we have (laughs) to OTUS everything?
0: I don't make the rules here. I just, you know, I'm just reporting on it. But I will say, so, okay, so they're not allowed to build because the Clean Water Act, protects these adjacent wetlands. But of course, the Clean Water Act does not define what adjacent is. And there is a test most courts have adopted that was crafted by Justice Anthony Kennedy in 2006 um, in another Supreme Court case that essentially he said, you know, look, you have to consider whether there is a quote-unquote significant nexus to navigable waters and other environmental factors. Um, Again, significant nexus is not something very easily or well-defined. So there's a lot of interpretation that is happening in the lower courts and by the agency as well. And And the Sackets, you know, they're arguing, look, the government, the courts, they're overreaching here and they want a new test. Specifically, they want one that suggests there has to be a physical touching of the waters.
1: You had to be able to basically see it with your eyes, that these wetlands are connected to these surface navigable waters that ostensibly you could navigate through. And how did that suggestion go over at the court?
0: Not great. Not great. Even some of the conservative justices who generally seem to lean in agreement that, you know, look, there needs to be more clarity and more specificity here, Um, some sort of brighter line, if you will. They didn't seem enthralled, though, with this option of like this, you know, physical touching connection. And I'll say, you know, just going back to what we were speaking about earlier, it was another example, I think, of what we were talking about. Justice Jackson came in early in the arguments with really direct questions. She challenged the Sackett's attorney on the definition of adjacency um, in light of the fact that over several administrations, the EPA has had kind of this longstanding understanding that, you know, adjacent wetlands can be separated. They can be separated by things like berms, dunes, dikes, levees, and it was a line of argument that I'll say that Justice Kavanaugh picked up on and also kind of grilled the Sackett's attorney on uh, regarding, you know, how can you suggest this when there's this like long-standing understanding that they can be separated, what adjacent wetlands can be separated. Um, and Justice Barrett also followed up on that questioning of, you know, how that understanding can be challenged when it was kind of accepted right around the same time of definition of Waters of the United States was first proposed. So, you know, it's a really interesting line of questioning that I think Justice Jackson really helped to kind of spur there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I recall one instance where the attorney for the Sackets is arguing about how a particular authority for the meaning of adjacent was unenlightening. And Justice Jackson is like, well, let's try and bring some enlightenment to it, shall we counsel? So yeah, she, uh, and that was, I guess, your first argument. So I want to move on to Tuesday's arguments and what I think is one of the biggest cases of the term. It's a voting rights case called Merrill versus Milligan. And it really, to me, kind of was Justice Jackson's biggest moment on the bench this week. Um, She had an extraordinary exchange with an attorney about the original meaning of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, which has been kind of a theme in some of the cases taken up this term.
0: That's right. Before we get into that, though, kind of let's set the stage a little bit. Uh, I know we previewed this case last week. Uh, for listeners, please go check that out if you haven't had a chance to listen. Um, but can you remind listeners what this one specifically is about?
1: Yeah. So Alabama is appealing a lower court order requiring it to draw a second majority black congressional district. So after they did the last census, um, the the state legislature settled on this redistricting plan that had just one majority black district out of seven, despite African Americans making up around 27% of the state's population. So black Alabamians represented by the NAACP brought a lawsuit challenging the proposed map under section two of the Voting Rights Act. They accused state officials of diluting the black vote by packing a large amount of black voters into one district and spreading, or I guess in in the kind of parlance of some of these Voting Rights Act cases, cracking the rest among the remaining districts where they would have no chance really of electing their preferred representatives in Congress. So, a lower court agreed with their claims and accepted the voter, the plaintiff voters' alternative map. And the, that map reconfigured the districts to accommodate a second majority black district. Now, Alabama makes basically two principal arguments to the Supreme Court on Tuesday for why the lower court got it wrong. First, they say that their original map can't violate section two of the VRA because it was the product of a neutral redistricting process. They say they kind of plugged the state map into these neutral computer programs that incorporated these traditional redistricting uh, principles that spit out the version that they ultimately settled on. So they say it was not infected by any attempt at racial discrimination. So In between the lines, here is that the argument that the Alabama Solicitor General was making is that plaintiffs can only succeed in proving a violation of Section 2 if they show evidence of discriminatory intent by lawmakers. That argument did not get very far, even with the conservative justices. And there's a reason for that. That's because the court has held that much in the past that discriminatory intent was required, only to be basically slapped down by Congress a few years later who clarified that discriminatory intent was not a prerequisite for Section 2 liability.
0: A pretty big turn of events. Yes, definitely
1: a big turn of events in the course of uh, the history of the Voting Rights Act. So let's turn to the second argument that the Alabama Solicitor General makes on Tuesday. And that did seem to have some more purchasing power with the court's conservative majority. Now, this is the idea that it was impossible to draw a second-majority black district using neutral redistricting principles alone. The only way to come up with a second-majority black district in Alabama is to make race the primary consideration for where to draw district lines. Pay no attention or at least undermine the traditional principles of like keeping like communities like when it comes to things like the Gulf area or the Mobile area and simply carve up the state based on racial considerations. Now, according to Alabama, this is incompatible with the Reconstruction Amendments, the 14th and 15th Amendments, establishing equal protection of the laws and extending voting rights to all. And here's a quote from Alabama SG Edmund LaCour, Jr. He says, Requiring states to scrap neutral plans in favor of plans drawn on account of race sets Section 2 at war with itself and with the Constitution.
0: So how was that argument received by the justices?
1: Well, like I said, it did seem to have a little bit more traction with the conservative wing of the court, but it did not get very far with the new member of the court, Ketanji Brown Jackson. So I want to play a clip here that is among the more kind of interesting exchanges I've heard between a justice, whether they're new or not, about the history and purpose of the Reconstruction Amendments ratified after the civil war. So here, before I play the clip, just a little bit of context, you can hear justice Jackson using originalist methodology that the court's conservative wing used in its decisions in the Dobbs and Bruin cases on abortion and guns. She makes the case that the constitution does not demand the colorblindness that Alabama is seeking in this case, but rather allows for laws intended to remedy historical injustices against underrepresented groups.
2: Um, I don't think we can assume that just because race is taken into account that that necessarily creates an equal protection problem, because I understood that we looked at the history and traditions of the Constitution, at what the framers and the founders thought about. And when I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted Uh, the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, in a race-conscious way, that they were, in fact, trying to ensure that people who had been discriminated against, the freedmen, um, during the Reconstruction period, uh, were actually uh, 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 brought equal to everyone else in the society. So I looked at the uh, report that was submitted by the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, Reconstruction, which drafted the 14th Amendment, Um, and that report says that the entire point of the amendment was to secure rights of the freed former slaves. The legislator who introduced that amendment said that, quote, unless the Constitution should restrain them, those states will all, I fear, keep up this discrimination and crush to death the hated freedmen. That's not um, that's not a race neutral or race blind idea in terms of the remedy. And, and even more than that, um, I don't think that the historical record establishes that the founders uh, believed that race neutrality or race blindness was required.
0: You have to wonder how effective that strategy will be with the conservative justices.
1: It's pretty early to say. So I agree. It, it, the jury's still out on whether, you know, this kind of strategy will even work. And it, it does remind me of the strategy that Justice Kagan has used in recent terms, where she's speaking the language of the court's conservatives, whether that is originalism or whether that is something like, you know, making the textualist argument in a statutory interpretation case. But, you know, it, I will definitely say that Justice Jackson seems way more inclined to using Oral argument as an opportunity to persuade and appeal to her conservative colleagues than someone like Justice Breyer. But, you know, who, like I said, who knows if it'll work in the
0: long run? Well, we'll be here waiting and seeing and watching throughout the term. For today, though, uh, I think that just about does it for oral arguments this week. Let's turn to the cert grants. There were a bunch. The court handed out orders from its long conference on Monday, taking up nine petitions that have piled up over the summer recess. Jimmy, you're going to focus on arguably two of those, the biggest of those, um, involving the legal liability of big tech companies like Google and Twitter in lawsuits um, claiming that they allow terrorists to use their platforms to commit deadly attacks. Can you set those up for us?
1: Yeah, so the court took up these two cases. One of them's called Gonzalez versus Google. The other one's called Twitter versus Tamna. And like you said, they both involve these kind of terror claims against the social media platforms. I'm going to focus on the Google case because it involves an issue that has become really trendy lately. And that is the kind of the broad immunity that big tech companies currently enjoy under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So a bit of background here. Um, Section 230 was passed in the 90s as a way to shield these fledgling websites from liability for publishing third-party content. So the idea was that you couldn't hold like an internet platform liable for publishing, let's say, defamatory content against someone, because, you know, that would frustrate the ultimate goal of the internet to disseminate large amounts of information if you had, you know, website moderators having to basically investigate each and every post to make sure that it didn't violate any laws. Well, the surviving relatives of a 23-year-old American killed during a 2015 terrorist attack in Paris, they say that Section 230 immunity has gone way too far. And that far from you know protecting basically you know, a, a messaging board from just allowing people to post on their messaging boards, now it shields companies like YouTube, which is owned by the defendant Google in the case, for actively recommending ISIS videos proselytizing terrorism using YouTube's sophisticated algorithms based on like users' input data. right? So this has, like I said, become a pretty hot-button issue over the past few years. The justices have rejected a number of petitions taking aim at the law lately. And for a while, it seemed like only Clarence Thomas was really interested in it. But you know, obviously the court has decided to open up this can of worms on Monday. And a few of the experts I spoke with afterwards are really kind of flummoxed why the court has decided to wade in now and in these particular cases and are basically unsure about how this the current composition of the Supreme Court is even going to deal with an issue like this.
0: Yeah, I think this one, I, I, look, we've talked about how it's going to be a blockbuster term before this one was taken up. But I think this Automatically makes it to like the top big three, top five. Yeah, top of, top of five definitely. For top five
1: definitely. Yeah. If this had come out over the summer, I would have rewritten my uh, five biggest cases. <laughs> <laughs> my five biggest cases listicle. Um, but yeah, Natalie, it's a big term. Uh, we're going to be right there in the front row for all of it, and I'm excited to kind of tackle what comes next.
0: Same here. Oh, well, Jimmy, as always, great chatting with you about the Supreme Court.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Allie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd also like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader, who's out this week, and Kelly Marcano and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Contributing reporters are Juan Carlos Rodriguez, Chris Bellani, and Carolina Bellato. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening.